you know, we, we had been sort of hearing about this conflict or coming conflict uh, in Ukraine for several weeks, and the, the timing is just really interesting. Um, the Russian military waited until after the Olympics were over. Vladimir Putin was there at the opening uh, ceremonies in, in Beijing, and then as soon as, you know, the, the fireworks went off around the bird's nest, then the firebombs started uh, falling in Ukraine. A sports is such a big deal, isn't it? Like that it would delay the, the, the start of a war, that all of these nations would kind of come together and pretend everyone gets along. The athletes of Russia are competing against athletes from the Ukraine in, in, this, in, this, in this game. But sports is a, is a big deal. There's a, a lot riding on sports. There's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of uh, connections. There's a lot of nationalism that's associated with sport. And sports not all bad. I mean, I love sports. I love the Olympics. Our family, sometimes we're just glued to the television screen. Our, our favorite Winter Olympic sports are hockey, obviously, and uh, ski or snowboard cross, and short track speed skating, especially the relay. The more people on the ice, uh, the better. And as I was reflecting on this, I realized that these, those are the three Winter Olympic sports that the, the likelihood of people crashing into one another is the highest. So that tells you a little something about our, our family. We just like watching people crash into one another, and frankly, we like crashing into one another uh, as well. And as I make my way around the church foyer uh, after a service, real a starting point for a lot of my conversations with people is sports. You know, there's a, there's a Raptors crowd, right? And so I got to be ready with my, you know, how's Fred Van Vliet and Spicy P, Pascal Siakam doing? I got to be ready to talk about the Raptors with, with this group of people. And then there's a, you know, I wish there were more, but there's a couple of hockey fans here. I'm a huge hockey fan, but I, I want to talk to people about like the 17 goals that were scored in one game last night. Like, really? I want to talk to some people about that. I want to talk hockey, other people, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn about uh, English Premier League soccer, and there are certain uh, people I'm checking in about how Chelsea is doing, or Manchester United, or Man City. Others are very patiently, it's been like a decade-long process, trying to teach me about how cricket works, and what the point of the, of the game uh, actually is. And then, and then, of course, there's baseball, and there's, there's Blue Jays, and, and talking, about, talking, about, uh, talking about that sport. We... we Sport is something that we often talk about. We use analogies related to sport all of the time. And those of us who aren't fans of sport, sometimes we feel a little bit left out because things are sort of flying over our heads. But sport is a big deal. It's a big part of our world. And as we make our way through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 9 uh, this morning, we want to remember sort of the, the frame of reference here. This is Paul's flow of thought. The Corinthians had written him a letter asking him about marriage and about sexuality, and they also asked him about food offered to idols. There were some people that wanted to steer clear of food sacrifice items. They didn't want to buy any meat that was offered to an idol in the past. They didn't even want to go to the grocery store that sold that kind of meat. And there was other people who said, no, Jesus declared all food clean. Food is not going to make me further away from God or closer to God. So I'm going to walk right into an idol's temple and eat whatever is put in front of me. And so they were divided over this. So Paul is trying to explain. He started, first off, without laying down the law, 
he gives this lengthy discussion about conscience, someone with a weak conscience or someone with a strong conscience. He talks about knowledge, how knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And that, that was chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. And then Andrew expertly walked us through the, the first 18 verses of chapter 9, a very difficult passage. Truth be told, there really aren't any easy passages in this part of 1 Corinthians. And where, where Paul talks, he uses himself as an example, as a positive example about how he lays down his rights. Then he's going to use Israel as a negative example, how they fell into idolatry. And then he's going to give two application points. Don't ever go into a temple and eat as an, as an offering of worship to an idol. Don't ever do that. And then he's going to say, but in a, in a social setting, in a shopping setting, Paul says, eh, it kind of depends on the situation. But where we find ourselves now is Paul is talking about illustration number one. He's talking about how he lays down his rights. So he, he used the Bible, don't muzzle the ox. He used, he used an example of the, the people who worked in the temple. He, he laid out and he, he explained in his own life, I could be earning a salary, but I'm, I'm not. I'm laying down that right. And that was really controversial because people thought Paul, because he doesn't charge anything, he must not have anything to say. Because his fee is zero dollars, he must have zero content. Because the way that you could tell if someone was an influential teacher or a successful teacher was how large their invoices were. If Paul's invoice was zero, if, if, then they thought, well, does that mean his teaching is worth nothing? So Paul has been explaining to them, this is why I don't collect a salary. I lay down that right. I don't want to create an obstacle for other people. And then to hammer it home, Paul uses a sports analogy. Just like sports is a big deal in our culture, in our world, sports was a huge deal in Corinth. So the Olympic Games was going on in Athens. But on the off year of the Olympics, the year before and the year after, in Corinth there was something called the Isthmian Games. The Isthmus is the tiny little piece of land where Corinth, you know, those two massive bodies of water, you can't go anywhere in the Roman world without going through Corinth. And Corinth was a hub, it was a central location, so all of these countries, all of these cities, all of these nations, all of these athletes would come together every two years for the Isthmian Games. And they would participate in events. These were some of the events for the Isthmian Games. Running, multiple different forms of wrestling, boxing, horse racing, and poetry reading. I'm not sure how many people crashed into one another during poetry reading. It doesn't sound that exciting. My family would not want to watch that, but some of us might. But Paul here, understanding that this was a sports city, Paul even, could, when you look at Acts chapter 18 and how long Paul was living in Corinth, the Isthmian Games would have happened at least once while he was there. So he would have seen this huge influx of tourists and all of these athletes. He might have even watched a boxing match or two or watched people run around the track or listen to some poetry. So Paul here, if, if you notice, in, as Dinesh was reading, in verse 19 to 22, he uses the word win five times. I want to win, I want to win, I want to win. And then when we get into verses 24 and 25 and 26 and 27, he talks about a race and running and the prize and an athlete and the wreath and boxing and training and discipline. He's talking about sports. 
to, to really flesh out his personal example, to help them really understand it, he closes off with this illustration from athletics about running to win. You see, the accusation against Paul was, first off, he didn't charge any money, so we shouldn't listen to him. But the other thing was that he was wishy-washy. When it came to food offered to idols, they all saw him when he was living there. Sometimes he ate, sometimes he didn't eat. Why should we listen to him? He hasn't even made up his mind. But Paul was saying, no, no, no. It depends on the situation. I'm not inconsistent. What I am consistent about is winning. And Paul says, whatever it takes for me to win, I'm going to do that. But what does he mean by Winning. What does it mean to, as the title for today's message is, run to win. Paul is, is, is saying that he is living a life, he is running, he is living on purpose, and he wants to win. And so as we look closely at what Paul has written here in, in chapter 9, verses 19 to 27, we're going to see what running to win requires. Three requirements for those who want to run to win. Here's the first one. Running to win requires contextual adaptation. It requires contextual adaptation. He begins in verse 19 saying, For though I am free from all, now thinking back to the beginning of chapter 9, Paul asked the question, Am I not free? That he answered it for, the first, for those first 18 verses. Now he comes back to the idea of freedom. Am I not free from all? He says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul says, I'm free. I'm free from all. No one pays my salary. You know the old saying, he who pays the piper chooses the tune? Paul had no one paying him. So he piped whatever tune he wanted. And what tune did he want to pipe? Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't have any complications in terms, of, in terms of people who were paying his salary, wanting him to talk or teach more about this than about that. Didn't affect Paul. There was, no, there was no one paying him, so he just piped whatever tune he wanted. He was free from all, but how did he use his freedom? Notice how he turns it on his head. Though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Paul loves this like freedom and servanthood. That our freedom doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. It means that we use our freedom to turn around and serve people like we're slaves. He says this in, in Galatians chapter 5 verse 12 talking about other people. He says, for you were called to freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. Act like a slave. Consider the interests of others. And this is what he said earlier in the letter in chapter 7, verse 22. For he who is called, he who is called in the Lord is a bondservant, it is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Remember when he was talking about those who were slaves and those who were free? And he was told the slaves, hey, if you can get free, go ahead. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Because even though you're politically and economically enslaved, spiritually and eternally, you're free. And those of you who are free right now, remember that that doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. That you serve others. You even serve people who are lower than you socially or economically just the way Christ came not to be served, but to serve. So loved ones, if we're going to run to win, 
Whenever we walk into a room, there's always a context. When we walk into our kitchen at home, and whether or not we're a child in the family or a parent in the family, whether we're a husband or whether we're a wife, there's, certain, there's a certain context that's there. There's a certain set of expectations that you have of others and that others have of you. When you walk into your workplace, if you're a teacher and these are students, or if you're a student and there's a teacher in the room, or when there's, a, there's an employer and employees, there's, there's a context, there's expectations. Now, how should a Christian behave every time they walk into a new context? Rather than saying, as I walk into this situation, what do I deserve? That's what our world, our world says. Every context, what do I deserve? What should other people be giving to me right now? If it's respect, then it's respect. If it's freedom, then it's freedom. If it's leniency, whatever it is, we, the world says, I go into a situation and says, what do I deserve? But a Christian says, not what I deserve, but how can I serve? We're free. We're free also to set other people free from whatever expectations we have. And Paul says, I, I, I am free, I'm free from all, but I use my freedom to serve. I don't, I'm not concerned about what I can get from other people. I'm walking into this room, I'm walking into this context, not trying to get, but prepared to give. Not focused on what I deserve, but how I can serve. And for Paul, the way that he served changed in different situations. In verses 20 and, and 21 and 22, Paul mentions two groups of people, those who are under the law, Jewish people, and those who are not under the law, non-Jewish people. And for Paul, this is why he was being accused of being wishy-washy, of a chameleon, of always changing his perspective, because when he was around Jewish people, he acted a certain way. Why? Not because he was free to and he wanted to do whatever made him comfortable. He was there because he wanted to serve and so he changed his behavior in some situations. Same thing when he was with non-Jewish people. He didn't do what he did with the Gentiles because he was free to. He was just doing whatever he wanted. No, he was there to serve them. So look at what he says uh, in verse 20. He says, uh, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. He wants to win. This is about winning. This is about competition. He's using a sports analogy. But did you catch what he said there? It's right there. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Paul became Jewish? I mean, you don't get more Jewish than Saul of Tarsus. I mean, how much more Jewish could you be than him? This is how he this is his, his personal autobiography. Philippians 3:5, circumcised on the eighth day, check, of the people of Israel, check, of the tribe of Benjamin, check, a Hebrew of Hebrews, check, check, as to the law of Pharisee, check, 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 check. Paul was so Jewish. And yet, when he's around Jewish people, he has to become like he's Jewish. What's going on here? Well, remember when we were talking about our primary calling and our secondary calling. For Paul, his primary calling was a follower of Jesus Christ. He's a Christian. He's not a Jewish Christian. He's a Christian who happens to be Jewish. And Paul, in chapter 7, was talking to people who were married and widowed and single and a slave or free or circumcised or uncircumcised and was telling them, th those things matter, those things are real, the we're not erasing all of those categories or boundaries, but we're just putting them in their proper place. They're secondary. 
So for Paul now, his sense of identity and, and purpose and security and comfort and fulfillment and significance and worth and hope, all of these things now not come from the fact that he's Jewish, they come from the fact that he's Christian. So our ethnic and cultural identity still remains. It's all going to be there in Revelation chapter 7. Every tribe and tongue and nation and language, we're all going to be there. Those things haven't been erased But they're now secondary. What matters most is that that group of people is going to be saying, worthy is the lamb. That that is the most important thing about them. So Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, says that he becomes Jewish in order to win those who are Jewish. And he says, just further expanding on what it means to be Jewish, he says to those under the law, I became as one under the law. So I'm here, I'm here, I'm here to serve. I'm, I'm meeting with Jewish people. Oh, you want me to eat kosher? Sure, I'll eat kosher. Oh, you want me to celebrate this festival? Sure, I'll celebrate this festival. Oh, you want me to pay for this guy's haircut? Sure, I'll do that. Now, he says that he's not under the law, though. But he's doing these law kind of things. So if he's doing the law kind of things, why is he not under the law? Here's why. Because if you're Jewish and not Christian... You're doing law things because you think if I follow the law, I'm going to get closer to God. The more haircuts I pay for, the more festivals I celebrate, the more kosher that I eat, I get closer to God. Paul says, I'll do all those things, but that's not going to get me closer to God. What got me closer to God was the cross of Jesus Christ. And so sure, I'm not under the law, but I'll, I'll participate. But I have the right level of thing. I know What gets me closer to God? It's not my obedience, it's Christ's obedience. It's not the sacrifices at the temple, it's Christ's sacrifice for me on the cross. So Paul says he's, he'll, he'll become Jewish to reach Jewish people. And then in verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. So these people care so much about kosher food and following festivals and this and that. These people don't care at all. So Paul's not going to insist that he eats kosher and that everyone bows to him and his. Paul says, no, I'll eat whatever I want to eat over here. I'll eat whatever they offer me over here because these people are not under the law. But Paul is quick to clarify, see in parentheses, he says, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ. Paul wants to make be clear, I'm not lawless, even though I say I'm not under the law, even though I'm ministering to people who are outside the law, Paul's saying that doesn't mean that I'm not following morality. This is what Paul says about himself as it relates to the law. He says he's not being under the law, he's not being outside the law, but he's under the law of Christ. You see, the law used to be in the old covenant, the law was how the people of God related to God. But we are in a new covenant. Christ has fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law better than anyone could. He never sinned. He fulfilled the moral aspect of the law. And he also fulfilled the ceremonial aspect of the law. He's the lamb who was slain that takes away the sins of the world. And so all of the sacrifices and everything about dietary and festival, it's all fulfilled in Christ. You see, I heard a wise man say recently that that. God's moral absolutes never change. And at, at different times, how God interacts with people changes. There were certain laws between Adam and Noah. And then after the flood, a couple of laws got introduced about murder and, 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 and a, a number of other things. And then Moses, and then there's a whole lot of laws, like 600 of laws get added. 
And then Christ, now we are in the law of Christ. God's moral absolutes, murder is always wrong. God's moral absolutes are always the same, but how he interacts with his people and reveals his moral absolutes has changed. So now we are under the law of Christ. We follow Christ. God went to all that trouble on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and uh, James and John are there, and the cloud comes, and what does he say? This is my son. Listen to him. Really similar to the Ten Commandments when the law was given. There's a cloud, there's a mountain. Moses is even there on the Mount of Transfiguration, where God, in the book of Exodus, says, here is my law. Now, Jesus is there on the mountain, the same cloud, Moses appears with Elijah and says, listen to my son. He now sets the law. What did he do? He summarized it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus fulfilled the law. And, and Paul's like, I'm not lawless. I'm under the law of Christ. Remember, remember Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't make the law easier. He made it harder. He was like, you think you're so good because you haven't murdered anyone? Let's talk about anger. Oh, you haven't committed adultery? Okay, let's talk about lust of the eyes. Let, let, me, let me remind you of God's holiness as we sang about. So Paul was all about cultural adaptation. He sums it up in verse 22. He says, oh, sorry, I've got one more group. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. This is the fourth time he mentions winning. Now, the weak is a subcategory of those who are outside the law. Remember back in chapter 8, when they asked about food sacrificed to idols, Paul was concerned about the weak person. The person who, even though they've been taught the truth about idols, the roots of that lie, because they've been raised in a context of idolatry, go in super deep. And you can't just pull it out. You can't just change that person overnight. Now, when Paul says, to the weak, I became weak, the weak person still believes there's power in, in, in the idolatry. Paul doesn't believe that, but Paul is sensitive. When he becomes weak, he's becoming sensitive to people that believe lies that have gone really deep. So Paul was willing to adapt based on the context Loved ones, as a church family and as individuals, we have to be willing to adapt. Every now and again in the car or the dining room table, our family will do these sort of like introductions where we'll say like, now introducing Ezra Duncan. He's the oldest and he plays center on Streetsville Derbies. And he, and, or or here's, here's Lindsay. She's the amazing mom who makes uh, cool things out of concrete and keeps everyone in order. We give these different introductions. And the other day, my son was giving, and here's Ted, pastor and Bible teacher, and half the world doesn't believe what he teaches. <laughs> it's more than half the world. Uh, it's, it's more than half of Canada. And if we're going to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, we got to understand that most people just fundamentally disagree with us right from the get-go. We're in such a hurry. Sometimes we think that evangelism is just pushing out the content. God loves you. Jesus died for you. you got to repent. That's the only way to heaven. If I just get that content out to as many people as possible, but the truth be told, not everyone is ready to hear that message quite yet. 
And they've got like three or four questions that they have up as walls around them. But in those walls have to be broken down before they're going to be open to hear that God loves them. And that Jesus died for them. They've got questions about science, about the, the origin of, of the universe, and about evolution. and all. They've got questions about that. They've got a questions about history. They want to know about the Crusades. They want to know about slavery. They've got questions about politics and identity and gender and sexuality and morality. They have all of these kinds of questions. And we wonder why people don't want to hear us. It's because maybe we're not hearing them. And so we've got to learn to think the way some of our neighbors are thinking. To, to understand, again, the purpose is to win them. Not to become like them. But to win them, to, to draw them to Christ. So it takes work. It's hard work. I mean, for Paul, I mean, being Jewish, that was, that was second nature, right? But for him to become like the weak, for him to become like those who are not under the law, that required a lot of learning. You read about him in Acts chapter 17 when he's walking around Athens and he's looking at the different writings and the, and the different statues. And then he ends up quoting some of their poets. He, he was trying to think how they, and he was trying to overcome some of those obstacles. He was trying to tear down some of those walls so that he could get at their heart. He was trying to answer some of those questions that they had so that he could share with them the gospel. So I just want to encourage you, here's a couple of resources that I would suggest. The first one's written by John Stone Street from the Colson Center called The Practical Guide to Culture. And this just is a really uh, simple book. There's also, there's youth editions actually to both of these books. But, but this book just lays out, here's the way people living in North America are putting things together. Here's the worldview that most of our neighbors and classmates and coworkers are thinking from. And then this is an excellent book by Ma Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity, where she just goes through 12 of the kinds of questions that non-Christians are asking. And she just very, very carefully and wisely and winsomely answers all of those questions. So I, I encourage you to, to pick up a book like this and, and to start learning how to better relate to our neighbors. If we're going to run to wind, and what does it actually mean to win? And Paul explains it. At the end of verse 22, he says, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That's what winning is. Winning is saving those who are lost. He says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Adaptation is not a virtue in and of itself. Being able to relate to Jewish people or non-Jewish people or postmodern people or Muslim people or Hindu people, just being adaptable is not a virtue. What Paul is saying is, I do all of this because I'm running to win. When we, when we think about chapter 9, verses 1 to 18, one of the dangers about hearing such an abundantly clear message from Andrew last week, one of the dangers is that we think that, well, just laying down our rights, that's what it means to be Christian. That every situation we go into, we just, whatever right I have, I just lay it down. I just lay it down. No. What it means to be a Christian is to live for the gospel. That's what Andrew tried to emphasize so clearly. And as we look at Paul's life in the book of Acts, there were times where he clearly laid down his, light, his rights. But there were other times where he said, um, by the way, you just imprisoned me illegally because I'm a Roman citizen. 
And I demand to speak to someone about it. Oh, excuse me, before you beat me publicly in front of all these people, I want to remind you of my rights. The end game is not laying down your rights. The end game is the gospel. Whatever will advance the gospel. For Paul, in some situations, laying down his rights, advance the gospel. He's running to win. In other situations, asserting his rights serve to advance the gospel. That's what it's all about, running to win. Paul says, I I adapt, not because I'm free to do whatever I want. He says, it's not about wants, it's about witness. He adapts so that he can be an effective witness. So that's, that's the first requirement of running to win. And that one was a little bit longer. These next two are going to come a little faster. Here's the second one, eternal motivation. Eternal motivation. If you're going to run to win, you've got to be focused on the right thing. Look with me in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You know, gold medals and silver medals, bronze medals, that's actually kind of a new thing. Um, Even in the modern Olympics, there were several Olympics before they gave out gold medals, silver, and bronze. In fact, the winner at one point was given a silver medal. No one else got anything. The one thing that's consistent... In, in, in Olympic celebration is the laurel wreath that athletes would wear uh, on, their, on their heads. And so, uh, yeah. So th- this is something that's been going on for centuries and centuries. This is what Paul is saying. This is the imperishable wreath. In, in the Isthmian Games, it was, it, was a, it was a games in honor of the god, lowercase god, Poseidon. And the winners would be given a wreath, a wreath made out of, get this, celery. (laughs) You could eat it after. It's a snack. Congratulations. Later, it was pine leaves, but it was perishable. It didn't last forever. Now, athletes knew that. (laughs) They didn't, you know, take the wreath off and put it in a Ziploc bag and hope that it would, no, they knew the wreath would not last. It was edible for Pete's sake. It's made of organic material. It's not going to last. What were they going after? They weren't going after the wreath, but what the wreath represented. The wreath meant that everyone's looking at them and cheering. The one with the wreath is the person who won. How long does that last? How long before someone else who's stronger and faster and better than you beats you at the next Isthmian Games? And all the glory and the praise that was once directed on you is now directed on others. When Paul says it's a perishable wreath, yes, it's perishable because it's made of celery. But it's also perishable because it's based on the praise of other human beings. But Paul says, no, we're going for something better. We are going for a wreath, for a crown that is imperishable. This is what's mentioned in James chapter 1 of verse 12 where Paul says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's unfading. It'll last forever. Revelation 2, 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is Jesus speaking to the church at Smyrna. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of glory. 
of life. Paul says you got to have an eternal motivation. You will not run to win if you're running to get the praise from the Jewish people or the non-Jewish people. If you're focused on pleasing people, that's not what it means to be all things to all men. Sometimes we use that today in a negative context, which is just people-pleasing. And Paul says, I'm all things to all men because I want to win. Because my eyes are on the prize, on the crown of glory that Jesus will lay on my head. The chief shepherd, eyes on the prize. So how do we do this? Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we don't know who wrote uh, Hebrews, but they were interested in sports just like Paul was. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is our motivation? What is the crown? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We race to win, not so that people around us can cheer and say, oh, good job, well done, you're the best, you're the greatest, you're so adaptable, and you're really running. No. We run so to hear the voice of Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. We run because the one who deserves the crown took on a crown of thorns and suffered and died in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve. And so we run with our eyes on him. And one day we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And one day, we all know where those crowns are going to go. We sang about it earlier this morning. Those crowns are not going to stay on our head. Loved ones, one day I'm going to be in a resurrected body. I'm going to take that crown off my full head of hair. And I am going to lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say, worthy is the lamb. That is our eternal motivation. That is what keeps us going when the race gets difficult. So we need a contextual adaptation if we're going to run to win. We need external motivation. And then thirdly, we need personal discipline. We need personal discipline. If, if our eyes are on the prize and we know we're going to get there, we know there's all kinds of obstacles and adversity in our way, and it's going to require discipline not to stop, not to quit, but to keep going. Verse 26, he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He says, I don't run aimlessly. If, you know, you picture a track athlete and they're, they're there and there's the finish line and the 100 meters and, and they're lined up and there's the finish line straight ahead of them on your mark, get set, go. And then they just start to run aimlessly and they're running backwards inside. No one does that. You run straight ahead. And then he uses the illustration of boxing. Imagine that your opponent is, is right here, and I'm, I haven't fought too much. But you picture your, your opponent's right there, and so you're driving your blows over here, and Paul says, I don't beat the air. I'm not punching over, over here. This isn't what I'm doing. I'm focused. I'm aiming for the finish line. I'm hitting my blows towards my opponent. That's what it takes to run to win. I don't run aimlessly. He says in verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. That word discipline is the word for punch. Who's the ultimate opponent? The opponent is not the people we're trying to reach with the gospel. That won't work well if we try to punch them. 
Our opponent is the indwelling sin within our flesh. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 says that there's a battle going on. There is a fight. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. This is the boxing match. We by the spirit are fighting against the desires. Our bodies are flesh. There's something inside of us. Even though we've been given a new heart and a new identity in Christ. There's something inside of us that's addicted to sin. And looking for the next hit. And we have to discipline that part of us. Put that part to death. Romans 8, 13. If you will live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's a fight to the death. So we discipline our body. And then it says, keep it under control. Do you see that in verse 27? Keep it under control. That means make it my slave. Paul said, back in verse 19, I'm free! But I use my freedom to be a servant, to be a slave to other people. How can you live as a servant? If you're going to serve others, if you're going to be a slave to others, you're going to have to enslave your flesh, the sinful desires that live inside of each one of us. That's why it says in Romans 6, it sums it up so beautifully, Romans 6 verses 17 to 19. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. You have a new heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness, the real you. Your heart is now a slave to righteousness, serves righteousness. For just as you once presented your members, your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul says... If you are going to compete, if you're going to run to win, your your strongest competitor, your strongest adversary is yourself. And you need self-discipline in your life if you're going to run for the prize. And here's what's at stake. Look down at verse 27. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We all know different stories of disqualification as it comes to the Olympic Games. Think back to Canada in 1988. If you weren't born, ask your parents. It's a guy named Ben Johnson. We all know those stories of someone, they seem to be doing so great, but there was something going on behind the scenes, and that person ended up being disqualified. Paul says, I don't want that. That's why I live with discipline. That's why I'm running to win. And this is transitioning to what Paul is going to say next in chapter 10. He's going to talk about Israel. He's going to warn them about through Israel as a warning to say, don't mess around with idolatry. Remember the history of Israel. He's going to take them through the book of Numbers and the different times where they fell into sin because of idolatry so Paul's telling that group of people that I don't care about food sacrificed to idols. I'll eat food anywhere. I, idols are nothing. I'll go right into a temple. Paul says, mm, just hold on a second there. You don't want to be disqualified because there was a lot of people that went through the Red Sea. There was a lot of people that saw the cloud on the mountain. There was a lot of people that saw Moses and heard him preach and saw manna every day and saw miracle after miracle, victory after miracle, victory. There was a lot of people and they were disqualified. They didn't make it to the finish line. They didn't enter 
the promised land. And that's Paul's heart. Paul says, listen, we, we got to be contextually adaptable. We've got to be eternally motivated. And we've got to have personal discipline. Now, I don't have to tell you this because you just have to look at me. I am not an elite athlete. But if you want to be an elite athlete, you have to make choices. An elite athlete cannot listen to their body. In the morning, the body says, stay in bed. But if your eyes are on the prize, you get up early. You're, and for an athlete, in the, your body says, Netflix. But eyes on the prize says, go to the gym. For an elite athlete, your, your, your body says, donuts. But eyes on the prize says, kale and steel-cut oatmeal. And so, loved ones, we have to live like elite athletes. We have to know what is good for us and what is bad for us. We have to know what our flesh is saying. Our flesh is saying, lust. But the spirit inside of us and eyes on the prize says purity and faithfulness. The, the flesh is saying laziness, but the spirit is saying hard work. The, the flesh is saying self-pity, but the spirit and, and eyes on the prize says consider the interests of others. There is this battle going on. We have to decide who are we going to listen to so that we would run to win, because here's the truth. Again, I'm not an elite athlete, so I've never been on a podium, but I know this for sure, that there's no one standing there with the wreath on their head and the medal around their neck, and there's no one saying, I really felt like I missed out on that trending uh, TV show on Netflix. I really wish I ate more donuts. No, it's worth it. When you get there, it's worth it. And yes, there are times as Christians where we feel like we're missing out or we feel like we just want to give in and be lazy or be lustful or be this or be that. The, sometimes the pressure is so immense. But loved ones, it will be worth it. When we're there in his presence, when we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, and put the crown on our head, and then we say, worthy is the lamb, and put the crown at his feet, we're not going to be concerned about the things we thought we missed out on. It, it will be worth it, loved ones. We've got to run to win. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, you use pictures. That you inspired Paul to use this imagery of athletic competition, of running to win. And whether we love sports or we don't, whether we're athletes or we're not, we can all identify with the general principles of making it to the end, crossing the finish line, benefiting from making wise choices in the short term that will affect things in the long term. So God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are disciplined, that you would help us to be a people who have our eyes on the prize, who are contextually adaptable as our world is continually changing, and who are motivated by eternity and who practice self-discipline. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.